All right, are you ready for this? We're going to play a word association game. I've done this a couple of times before and I've made it a complete hash of it in the first service. So I'm going to give you fully informed kind of details about where we're going to go with this. I'm going to say a word, the same concept, the same word three times. All right? And each time that I say it, you have to say the first word that comes to mind, but you can't say the same one twice. Is that, is that okay? Are you ready? Have I confused anyone? People are looking at me like a paddock of cows this morning in the first service. So it's going, okay, I, I haven't done well with explaining this. Are you, are you ready to go? Here it is. Church. Okay. One or two people want to just say what word they said? People? Family? Who said family? Roman? Cool. All right, you ready? Say it out loud. Church. All right. What, um, what word did you say? Just two people? Worship? Building? Ready? One more time. Church? You're running out. There's only two words that describe the church, obviously. What, what did you say then? God? What did you say? A banana. That's what I thought you said, banana. <laughs> that might be a word disassociation game. Look, one word that probably doesn't get said very much when you say the word church is unity. True? Uh, it should, but it doesn't. Uh, I was talking to uh, a Christian lady in the last week that uh, runs a business in, um, in Toowoomba, sorry, in the, in the region here. And uh, you know what she said? She actually said this. She said that uh, some of the rudest people that her business has to deal with are Christians. And it was interesting in the first service this morning, I said it, and one of the businessmen in the church was nodding his head like that. Uh, she actually said that she's embarrassed to tell her staff who are not Christians that people who'd come through her business were Christians. You know, There's, it's, it's a bit sad, isn't it? I mean, in one sense, uh, Christianity should be known for unity, but... Unfortunately, amongst uh, people out there in society that don't follow Jesus, a lot of people would probably say it's disunity. And, and somehow it's, it's attitudes and, and stuff that Christians bring to the table as they gather together that Christians get known for rather than their love for one another and their unity uh, with one another. Relationships in the church are difficult, aren't they? Often. Not all the time, but they're often difficult. And I think part of the reason why relationships in the church are, uh, are really difficult is because I think that's the way that God intends it, okay? I remember reading a while ago, someone said that what God does uh, with his family is he brings together people who are natural enemies and puts them in the same family together, which I think is pretty true. I mean, you think about uh, the groups that exist in culture, people gather based on same likes, all right? They gather, gather based on the things that they like and the kind of people that they are. Um, but in the church, you've got all sorts of people with all sorts of different preferences and likes and God kind of sticks them together and thinks that's a really good plan. And it is a good plan, but it's a different plan to what we would have uh, in the church. So you think about the disciples, for example. Jesus picks Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for the Romans, and Simon the Zealot, who probably wanted to kill him. So let's get those guys together. That's going to make for some really good community group times. All right, we're going to work through conflict really well. Christmas lunch is going to be great. Like, let's just get people together that don't like each other. 
but that's, that's kind of part of it. I think that's part of the complexity of, of, of uh, the church, you know, is that God brings together people that don't naturally kind of drift toward each other, except that Jesus is central to them. I think another reason um, in the church that relationships can be really difficult and hard sometimes and unity can be a real struggle is because there's a biblical impulse for deeper relationships than what you do at your work. You know, you can be with someone at your work, someone at your work can kind of irritate you, you can give them a piece of your mind or you can just kind of quarantine that relationship and just go, I'm only dipping the white part of my big toenail in that relationship. You get what I'm saying? I'm not going all in there, I can just kind of quarantine that off and not have to go there. But at the end of the day, when we come back to the church, God's kind of, there's a biblical impulse to push in deeper than that. And that gets really difficult and that gets really hard. And part of the difficulty in that that I've noticed with the church is that somehow this biblical expectation to deeper relationship becomes an expectation that we put on other people and the way that they should act toward us. It's kind of like you know the stuff in the Bible that talks about how you need to operate relationally and then you use that as ammo against other people in the church that are not acting that way. You with me? It's like, I know the chapter and verse for what you're doing right now and you need to stop doing that. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't act like it. You shouldn't do it. This is what the Bible says about what you're doing right now. And somehow, unfortunately, at least in the minds of some people, what is most normal in the church is division. And I've heard some people kind of criticise um, Protestant churches before, and they would say something like, um, You're a, Protestant churches came out of a protest. <laughs> and so somehow in there, there's some kind of DNA that we want to protest against each other. And we kind of want to divide and split and create more and more churches. I remember uh, hearing about a church plant that started because people wanted to divide from the church that they were going to because they didn't like what they were doing. And do you know what happened to that church plant? It split. And it split multiple times. So that kind of the inception, the DNA of this thing was a reaction and a division from other people and then it kind of played itself out in the life of that church. You see, division is not normal in the church. I get that into your head, all right? In spite of the fact that people think it's normal for the church, division is like ridiculously abnormal. I mean, you only have to look at Ephesians 1 to 3 to know that God's made every, everything one and unified everything. So you know what's normal? Unity. Unity's normal. Here's the thing. Jesus created unity, but how do you maintain it? That's a good question. Thanks for asking. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Love for you to look it up. You can grab a Bible up the back if you need to grab one. We're going to duck around a little bit today. But Ephesians 4 verse 1 to 6. Today I'm going to be looking at unity, uniformity and conformity. Starting at verse 1 of Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, those who are here for the first three chapters of uh, Ephesians, what calling have you been called to in the first half of Ephesians? Anyone want, like to throw that in? Have a punt, even though you're not supposed to do that as a Christian. 
Anyone? Unity, yeah? Because we're in what? We're in Christ. We're in a family, right? You go back to Ephesians 1. So we're called to be in Christ. We're called to be in a family, unified in a family. Okay, that's the calling that we've got. So how do you do it? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here we go. Let's kick in. Number one, unity is normal. You notice there in verse 4 to 6, what is the recurring word in verse 4 to 6? Can anyone tell me? One. All right. There is only one dad. There's one family. There's one, like there's a whole bunch of ones in those verses. There's not many. There's ones. All right. So the call there is actually to be unified. You know, we, we're adopted into the one family. I mean, at, at some level, you, you just got to be able to say unity is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. If, if all this is true, unity is a no-brainer. It's kind of like, well, we're all going to be together forever. So we may as well learn how to get along. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, uh, probably thinking, man, I hope I don't get the, sh- the short straw living next to that guy for the rest of eternity. All right? Or I hope I'm not allocated his seat in the worship service for the rest of eternity. All right? But here's the thing. You know, I've got four sons, and you know, my four sons can have a blow-up relationally with each other one night and you know what's going to happen the next morning when they wake up they're still going to be in the same house and with the same family and I worked out that roughly at a minimum my boys are going to have to work out how to get on with each other for 12 to 13 years that's a long time it's not like you can just get up the next morning you go I had a blow up last night and that's it for me sorry fellas like you got about eight years to go (laughs) you know it's like we may as well work out how to get along. Um, it's a long time. It's going to be tough if you just decide in God's family that that's it. I'm not going to work with God's people anymore. And Paul's kind of going, you are one, so be one. But let's just pull back for a minute and look at the positive side of unity. Unity's amazing, right? I think unity is like being healthy. You don't notice it until you get sick and then when you get sick you long for the day when you're healthy again there's a massive blessing in unity between people come across to psalm 133 um, with me psalm 133 psalm 133 Come bless the... uh, Sorry, that's 134. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. My wife and I can say that about our house, all right? It is, right? It's intrinsically good and blessed uh, when our kids dwell in unity. It's, It's intrinsically good and blessed when the church dwells in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, just let me stop for a minute. This is like tabernacle oil right this is like tabernacle oil reserve kind of oil if that makes sense it's almost i probably bring some kind of insult but this is almost like uh the colonel's secret herbs and spices kind of oil all right 
Like you're not allowed to imitate it. This is just in the temple, right? This is special stuff. It had a, a fragrance that could not be contained. Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Who knows that it's true that where there's unity, it's a massive blessing. It is, right? And it's a massive blessing when there's unity in the church. Have you ever been in a church that has a high degree of unity? It's amazing. Have you ever been in one where there is disunity? I mean, even in politics, disunity is? What do they say? The coalition says this all the time. Disunity is death. All right? And it is. It is. It'll kill a place. How much more so in the church? But you know that... The difficult, the kind of the curveball, the curveball, the, the red herring, the spanner in the works in the church is that there's something in the church that makes people fundamentally incompatible. And it's sin. You know, you're married to people, and I've married a bunch of people as a celebrant. I need to say that. Say so I've married a bunch of people. People go, really? You should be you're leading the church? Is that okay? Is that is there a scripture about that? Um, I've married a bunch of people as a celebrant and taken them through premarital counselling, right? And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I remember the CCF guys over there reckon in counselling, you're either dealing with people who are married who don't want to be or people who aren't married that want to be or... Um, and what you find in, in premarital counselling is you've got these people with stars in their eyes and they're just going, this is going to be so wonderful. It's like I found my soulmate, my compatible soulmate. And you know what? Anyone who's married here knows that sin makes you and your spouse fundamentally incompatible. Creates a big problem. And it's, it's like that in the church, you know. God's brought us together, but we still have residual kind of sin in our lives that makes us incompatible. You know, the, the pressures, if you go back to Ephesians 4, the pressures of uh, dealing with people outside the church don't even come up until verse 17. I think it's curious at the very least in Ephesians 4, that the first cab off the rank for Paul is let's talk about relationships in the church. Let's talk about unity in the church because unity in the church is harder than it looks. So let's go on to the next bit here. How do we guard normal? If unity is normal, how do we guard it? Come back across to Ephesians 4 with me. See verse 3 there. Verse 3 says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the thing. Everyone in this church, everyone in the church globally and the church in Toowoomba needs to guard unity. I mean, if you don't guard it, it's just not going to happen. And I want to ask you this morning, are you eager to maintain unity? With believers, are you eager? Are you eager to maintain unity in the project? Are you eager to maintain unity in your community group? Are you eager to maintain unity in the churches of Toowoomba? Are you eager to maintain unity in the church of, of the globe? And I believe there's a bunch of you just going, yeah, I am. I'm really eager. Or well, how do I do it? Well, you do it the true human way of doing it. And that's what Paul's talking about here. If you belong to Jesus, the truly human way of guarding unity is by doing these three things. Being humble, gentle and patient slash bearing with one another in love. So you do it. 
It's just like, Peter, I, I came to get a trick. <laughs> Can you give me a unity trick? How do we, how do, we do this unity thing? It, it's got to be a silver bullet. Well, Paul just goes, no. Humility, patience, and gentleness. That's what he says. So let's just kick through those quickly. Just tease them out a little bit. They're no-brainers, right? Well, think about humility for a sec. Let's just reverse it. Think about pride. You ever seen proud people get together and work really well together? <laughs> doesn't happen, right? It just, don't, it just doesn't happen. You ever seen a bunch of arrogant people just partnering together in really good unity amongst arrogant people? It doesn't happen. And the reason why it doesn't happen is because the essence of pride is competitiveness. Pride is like putting ourselves in the centre and it kind of, because of that, becomes anti-God and anti-other people. And the, and the truth is that even though uh, most of us here, if not all of us, belong to Jesus, there's still some residual pride. No one's actually free from it. I mean, and here's the truth. C.S. Lewis said a very perceptive thing, I think, when he said, the more irritated you get with proud people, the more you can see that you're proud yourself. That's just kind of how it rolls. Like you notice it. You notice the competitiveness kind of rise up in you when you see an arrogant, proud person. Listen to what Lewis says on pride. He says, From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and itself as self, the terrible opportunity of choosing God or self as centre is open to it. At this very moment in time, you and I are either committing it, pride, or about to commit it, or repenting of it. You see, pride at the end of the day is essentially self-obsession. You love yourself and you're in the centre of your life. <laughs> Paul Tripp said that uh, the motto of our age could easily be, I love myself and I have a wonderful plan for my life. You see, when we even think about pride, there's, there's different kind of varieties of it. It kind of pops up in different ways. At one end of the spectrum is kind of confident pride. And then the other end of the spectrum could be described as insecure pride. One of them up here is where you win at the game, you can do stuff and you feel really confident and you're in the centre. And this one down here is where you're losing at the game but you're still in the centre. Either way, self is in the centre. Listen to what Piper says about um, this kind of pride down this end. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says... I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognised worthiness. It is a response of, an un of unapplauded pride. What does Paul lead with in verse 1 of chapter 4? I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. See, for Paul, God is central. And that's where humility comes from. It comes from the centrality of God. You know, if you go back into Greek literature back in the day, humility was derogatory. It was a derogatory term. It meant servility, weakness, shameful lowliness. And Jesus comes along and what, how does... He described himself in Matthew 11, verse 29, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Come across in your, uh, in your Bibles a couple of pages to Philippians, Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2, we'll just start at verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, that's just a... That's punchy, isn't it? Verse 4. I mean, the great command is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as you love yourself. I mean, I, I, I just think that's classic. Just, God's going, right, just love your neighbour as much as you love yourself and you'll be sweet. That's, that's a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this is what humility is. What did Jesus do? He put his father's plan and his father's will in the centre of his life. It wasn't his stuff. It's having God in the centre and self out of the way. Think about John the Baptist. Jesus said about John the Baptist, he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. What did John the Baptist say in John 3 verse 30? He said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Right at this moment where this question gets asked of John the Baptist, his disciples come along and go, hey, uh, have you noticed that Jesus has got more people going to him and he's baptising more people? And John the Baptist ends up saying, yeah, that's how, that's how it works. That's the gig. That's the gig of the universe. He's the centre of everything, not me. And I need to get less than what's happening at the moment. You know, there's a real danger sometimes in, in, in Christendom, I think. It's been what I think has just been a precious and deep movement of, uh, of grace and expression of God's love for people, but there's a danger associated with it. Let me just cash this out for you. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of books written on God's love for people. You know, the, the danger that exists sometimes in some of that talk about God's love for people is that people end up in the centre and God's this person that flutters around the outside making sure that I'm okay. See, God's love for you is immense. You can't even understand it. I've covered that in the last couple of weeks. But you can't read Ephesians 1 to 3 and think that humanity's in the centre. We're just not in the middle. In fact, it wouldn't be loving for God to put us in the centre. You can see, I trust at this point in time, how this virtue of humility helps unity, right? Jesus is in the centre. Who likes to ride push bikes? Who likes to do that? Okay, you ride a push bike and you've got a push bike, usually two wheels, all right? Gilmore likes to do one. But uh, you usually got two wheels that have got spokes on the wheels, all right? The spokes on a wheel find their orientation from the centre of the wheel, right? And that's why the wheel works. And that's what, that's what we're like. Jesus is meant to be in the centre of everything that we do because he is in the centre of everything. He just is. And sometimes we become like a push-bike wheel where the spokes just go, I don't want to take my reference point from the centre anymore. I want to do my own thing. And then it just gets mangled and it doesn't work. And you can see how unity, when, when the unselfish one, Christ, is put in the centre... And everything finds its unity and its fulfilment and its reference point in him. You get unity in the church. Does that make sense? 
And that's how it works. That, that's what humility is. Humility is saying, I'm not the centre of anything. I'm a spoke. That's what I am. I'm a spoke. And I want to be a really good spoke and I want to keep my reference point to the centre. This is what Lewis says about humility. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that of course he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in, him, in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. You see, humility looks different to what you expect, you know. A lot of the time we can kind of think, and I, I think a lot of my life uh, I've thought that humility is you've just got to be putting yourself down. That's not humility, because yourself's still in the centre, even while you're putting yourself down. And you get in that weird trap sometimes in Christianity where you go, the righteous thing to do is to put myself down at this point. And yet it's the most unrighteous act in a sense because it's self being in the centre. It's actually pride. Humility can look different to what we expect. Think uh, to um, 1 Kings 18. You know the story of Elijah uh, up on Mount Carmel? What's he doing? He's up there on Mount Carmel. There's two lots of sacrifices. And he lets the prophets of Baal go first to see if their God's going to sort things out for him. And Baal doesn't do anything because he doesn't even exist. <laughs> and what does Elijah do? He starts ragging on Baal. All right? Now, he didn't rag so much on the prophets of Baal, he ragged on Baal. All right? Now, is that humble? I think it is. <laughs> you look through the Old Testament and you'll see a lot of sarcasm that ridicules false gods. In fact, Isaiah 30. One of the things that, um, that Isaiah prophesies about is that the people are going to go and they're going to defile the idols that they've been serving. It's like they're going to go and they're just going to rag on and just destroy the idols that they've been serving. You see, Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel is there and God is central for him and he's bagging out Baal. It's not that he's not being humble, it's a humility that looks a little bit different. He's saying, is he on the toilet? You remember that? Maybe he's gone to relieve himself. Baal's pathetic, God's great. God was in the middle. But look at what happens with uh, Elijah just a couple of chapters later. What happens to him? Jezebel says, I'm going to take you out. And what does he do? He's under a tree on his own, crawls out from under it and says, I want to die. And what looks like it would normally be humility, someone being downtrodden is actually pride. Do you see that? Because he's in the middle of his life. Think about Jesus with religious people. You think about Jesus in the temple with a whip driving people out. Is Jesus humble then? Yeah, he is. He was always humble. All the time. He never got proud. But his zeal for God's house consumed him. God was in the centre of his life and he was prepared to do some hard things. Who knows that in our culture... Christians can say some things and be very, very humble people and get accused of being proud and arrogant. Who knows that's true? Like you stand up in the public square 
and you stand up for God in the public square and you put God in the center of your life and I guarantee there's going to be a chorus of people that are going to get around you and point you out as being narrow-minded and arrogant and proud and it will be the exact reverse you will actually be being humble because you know what they want you to do they want you to be nice (laughs) and I'm just telling you this morning nice and humble go together but they don't always go together Sometimes humility looks different to nice. Now, let me just transition into the next character trait, the next virtue that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. And this just backs up this idea that humility is not weakness. He goes on and he he actually says, um, with all humility and gentleness... I just want to stop for a minute and just think about the opposite of gentleness. You know what the opposite of gentleness is? It's harshness. What does harshness do to people? You, 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 get in, you start being harsh in the church. You start being a wrecking ball. I mean, in the King James Version, the uh, word for gentleness, gentleness there is, is meekness. You know what meekness is? Meekness is power under control. It's power that's being trained. You think about, think about oxen with a yoke on them, being able to do something really productive and using their power in a controlled way. That's what meekness is. That's what gentleness is. You see, you think about the church and you've got someone in there that's just using their power like a wrecking ball. Absolutely, it's going to create disunity. You know, sometimes people just think, just give it to him. He's being stupid anyway. He deserves it. They're being stupid. Just tell him. You know, those kind of things just have more of a feel to it, like power that's not under control. It actually repels people. It brings disunity. My old man used to say, meekness is not weakness. And it's not. It's not weakness. It's power that's under control. It's consideration of other people. Let me ask you this question. Where does your power need to be trained? Where does your power need to be trained? See, gentleness and meekness is being willing to waive one's rights. If you're going to guard unity in the church, you need gentleness. You know why? Because you're dealing with fragile things. Unity is a very, very fragile thing in a church. Unity is fine china in a church. Who knows that people are fragile? Some of you, even right now, can remember what someone said to you 25 years ago. So that, that's why you need to be gentle. We don't need wrecking balls in the church. The body of Christ is fragile. And let me just leave you with a quote here that just as a bit of an encouragement for you, uh, just, to, just to be cautious. Wendy Mass said this, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. I just, let me just encourage you with something. Before you actually make comments about people, hear their story. Ask them to tell you their story. Because you know, <laughs> I've had more than one time 
where I've had a thought or a comment that I've shared with someone close to me about someone else and then you find out what's happened in their backstory. And you know, and I've just gone, yeah, I probably just should have not said anything. I should have just pulled up and I should have asked them to tell me their story. Um, a few weeks ago, I got to talk to a dad out at uh, rugby training, which I wasn't doing, I was watching it. So there you go, yeah, he doesn't look like a rugby guy. But I was out there and I was talking to this dad and uh, he's from South Africa and you know what ended up happening is he ended up telling me his story. It was fascinating. And it was convoluted, intertwined with other things and difficult, really, really difficult at places. And uh, I don't know, I'm just telling you, I kind of got to the end of it. I said to him, mate, I said, I just want to tell you that I really appreciate you telling me your story. I just really enjoyed listening to it. And I feel like we can have a conversation now because I, I just, even over 15 or 20 minutes, I just know a little bit about what makes this guy tick and what's happened for him and why he does what he does. Listen to people's stories. Don't just judge people based on what you see on the surface. One, what you'll be doing when you listen to someone's story is you'll be being gentle and meek and valuing something that's, uh, that's fragile. Just think with me for a moment about Jesus. Was not Jesus the epitome of meekness and gentleness? You think about the power of Jesus. I mean, you think about the things that were thrown at Jesus when he was on the cross. Uh, if you're the son of God come down from that cross, can't you get a legion of angels to come and do something? Do you see that? And the fact that he stays there and he carries the weight of the world on his shoulders in a meek and gentle way is phenomenal, is it not? Is that just touching? Because you look at it and you go, that meekness is not power. Oh, I know it. Yes, it is. It is incredible power. It is power that's trained and under control. A bruised reed he will not break. It was, it was said of him by the prophets. And a smouldering wick he will not quench. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Last one. Patience. Who's excited about this one? <laughs> when was the last time that you prayed and asked God to teach you patience? Last week? Last year? Last decade? You know the reason why it's probably been so long is the last time you prayed it, all hell broke loose shortly after that. All right? Because patience often works like a weightlifter. All right? You go to the gym and God's going, you want patience? I'm going to put another 40 kilos on the bar. <laughs> and we're going to see if you can pump that one. Patience is to be long burned, to have a long fuse like a continent long. You see what Paul's saying here is don't just be humble and gentle, but do it for a really long time. Like be humble and gentle for a really long time. Be patient by bearing with one another in love longer than 10 minutes. Now you sit there sometimes, you go, they deserve some punishment. Well, they probably do, but don't do it. Do you know how many times they've done that to me? 
Yeah, it was probably three. Have you ever noticed that? You've got a really long fuse for your own weaknesses and a really short fuse for other people's. Like how many times have you, have you let yourself off the hook for doing that? And then someone comes along and we often get really frustrated and disappointed and irritated when they do something three times. And I just go, well, how, how many times did you do it? And you let yourself off the hook. We can OD on stuff that hasn't happened to us that much. You see, to bear with one another, to be patient with one another, is literally to hold them up, to put up with their faults and their idiosyncrasies. Let me give you some good news. People are going to do the same annoying, irritating things again and again. There you go. It's true. They just will. And you're going to, we will do it to each other. You just go, when are you going to stop that? I don't know. Jesus knows. You know, like I'm pretty, you know, I, I think God can do some amazing kind of work in people's lives, no question. And he's done huge work in my own life. But do you know there's probably going to be fault lines in my life that I'll take to my grave? There's going to be weaknesses. They're just going to sit there and it's going to pop up. Peter, you're doing that again? Yeah, that's right. I am doing that again because I haven't done it enough yet, clearly, to learn that it doesn't work. That's what's going to happen. Now, we can either be distant relationally from each other or we can actually be up close and personal with each other. And if we're going to do that, we're going to need to be patient and bear one another's burdens. Why? Because they're interested in unity. If you stay distant from one another and you don't have significant relationships with people, right, you don't really have that much unity. Who knows that God's patient with you? It's true, right? Exodus 34 verse 6, God says of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now you've got the Matthew 18 parable that Jesus tells, right? You know this one? A guy owes someone like way, way, way more money than he's ever going to be able to pay off. He goes to this guy and he says, I can't pay it off. Can you, let, you know, can you show me mercy? The guy lets him off the hook. He goes out and some dude owes him 50 bucks and he throws him in jail for it. Is it one of the points, one of the key points in that story, I think, is if you don't give forgiveness, then you don't get it. You don't get it. See, that guy didn't get it. He didn't get what just happened to him. If he got what just happened to him, he'd give forgiveness. And think about Jesus on the cross. I mean, just... What's happening? I mean, the word excruciating comes from the root, out of the cross. That's, that's where it comes from. And Jesus is on the cross. He's got nails in his hands and feet. He's bleeding to death and suffocating on the cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Now, that is off the charts patience, isn't it? That's off the charts bearing with one another in love. Jesus loves you and bears with you when you are painful, failing, giving up and being an idiot. All in love. And I want you to hear this this morning. He is far more patient with you than you will ever have to be with other people. You've got to hear that today. But let me just digress for a couple of moments. Some of you might be thinking, well, okay, does this mean that we just, it's unity at any price? 
And we don't kind of have any kind of, there's no lines in the sand, there's no guidelines about which we're actually going to do this. And I want to say no, I think it's unity on the basis of the gospel. And there's some things that are central and other things that are not central. Let me show you a little diagram up here that describes uh, one way I think that, he, that unity could actually happen. You've got three concentric circles up there. What you've got in the centre circle up there are things that are essential to, the true, to true faith. Apostles' Creed, excuse me, the kind of things that are um, talked about in mere Christianity, central kind of gospel things. If someone comes into the church here and, uh, and says, Jesus was just a man, he wasn't God, there's no trinity, we're just not going to have unity with that person. All right, That's going to be in the centre there for us. We're going to divide over that stuff. The next circle out there are things that are important uh, but not essential. One of those, for example, might be the view of baptism. So you might be coming to the project, you might be going, um, my view of baptism is that kids need to be baptised when they're babies. All right, That's not our position on baptism, but that's not the basis on which we actually have unity together and can actually walk alongside one another. And there's lots of other things. You might have been in church here in Ephesians one, when we were doing predestination and going, well, I'm not a predestinarian in the way that you are, all right? Um, and, and that's okay, all right? It's okay. It doesn't mean that we can't work, walk together and work with one another. Um, what it does mean, though, I think for the sake of a church and for the leadership of a church, I think the further you go up in leadership in a church, the more unity you need to have on the core issues of theology, right? So that's what you'll actually find in the church is that there's a far higher standard with regard to theological unity amongst the elders and what it would be for someone who walks in the back door. Um, and I think that's appropriate and right and wise to do that. But if you get out to the, uh, the outside circle there, there's areas where there's liberty in things. All right. So some people, for example, it's a big thing in the state, some people would say that they think homeschooling is really important. And we're not going to say it's not important. We could see how it would be important for someone else, but that's an area of liberty on the outside. Now, the church gets into trouble when people push areas in each of these circles, they push them into another zone. Does that, does that make sense? You start pushing that stuff into a different zone and you start running into trouble. Let me give you another metaphor here. One of the things that uh, we've often used to describe uh, doctrine and theology in the project is close-handed and open-handed issues. Okay, so in the closed handed in the closed hand over here, these are all the things that we will divide over. So it's like if someone walks in and they say that Jesus wasn't God and he didn't die on the cross for our sins or he didn't actually get raised from the dead, those things are all in the closed closed hand over here, and we're saying no, we're going to divide from you. Okay, but then there's a whole bunch of things over here in the open hand that we're not going to divide over. So you might come up and ask me and. I don't know whether anyone has, but maybe it'll happen now that I mention it. But you might actually come up and go, so is the project old earth or young earth? All right? Now, the project actually doesn't have a position on old earth or young earth, but we actually think that you, you don't need to be clear about old earth or young earth so that you can be saved, so it's in the open hand. All right? But what will happen sometimes is people will put open-handed issues in the closed hand and divide over them. All right? And that's where we need to be really, really careful. It's not unity at any price. 
We're just saying that the things in the open hand are not the basis for unity. The things in the closed hand are the basis for unity, uh, both in the project and also in God's church as a whole. Let me finish here. Conformity. Having said all of that this morning, there may be some of you just thinking, do I just need to work harder? Came to church today, had a rough week, uh, I feel really flat, I didn't get enough sleep last night and you've just told me about a whole bunch of stuff that I need to do and it's just making me tired just thinking about it, all right? Is that what it's about? Is this what, like, I mean, if you've been in Ephesians since Ephesians 1.1, hopefully inside of you are going, no, no, it's, it's, it's actually not about that. It's not that you've just got to go and be virtuous and work harder at doing something and I'm not saying that it isn't hard sometimes to be uh, humble and to bear up with one another and be patient and gentle with each other but Paul's making it really clear I think in Ephesians that that's normal it's normal to be humble patient and gentle that's what the new humanity does see the battle to see these things be real in your life is a battle to have Jesus dwell in your heart see if you want these if you look this morning and you're going oh I need more patience humility and gentleness in my life you need more Jesus that's what you need you need more of the presence of Christ dwelling in your hearts day by day because these things, gentleness, patience and humility don't exist as like out in the atmosphere somewhere as this kind of virtue that we've got to, we've got to imitate. It's, it's like it's in the body of Christ, it's in the person of Christ that you find these things. I trust you noticed that as I went through them. You become what you worship. You become like the people you hang out with. What, um, what parent here has ever used the uh, little saying that pops up in Corinthians, bad company corrupts good morals? Anyone ever said that? You have? Well, do you know I reckon the reverse is true? Good company corrupts bad morals. And I think that's the whole gig that Jesus is on about. He comes to the planet. He walks around on the earth. He brings you alive from the dead. And his whole mission is to corrupt corruption <laughs> and bring it back to what it was always meant to be do you want these character qualities or you walk with the spirit galatians 5 tells us you have communion with jesus and you work to have jesus actively and consciously dwelling in your heart let me leave you with uh, what i think is a really perceptive quote from uh, david powerson christ makes me see myself makes me catch myself and then makes me different. I trust that a little bit of that has happened for you today, that you've seen a little bit of yourself, Christ has caught you and then he's actually changing you.